how many Anne of Green Gables fans do I have out there? All right. So there's things you only get with a female minister. And one of them is illustrations about Anne of Green Gables. If you don't know the story, Anne is an orphan who has been, spent her life in orphanages and uh, in foster homes. And uh, she finally gets word that there's a family who wants to adopt her. And so she makes the long journey to Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert's home. Marilla and Matthew are uh, two uh, brother and sister, probably in the 50s, 60s, who have never married, and they're looking for some help around the farm. What Anne discovers when she gets there is that they actually wanted a boy and not a girl. This is, of course, devastating to Anne, and uh, she has to spend one more night there before she is sent off and back to the orphanage, and as she goes to sleep that night, um, Marilla comes and says goodnight to her and says, you know, say your prayers, and she says, I can't say my prayers. I am in the depths of despair. And she says, Marilla, haven't you ever been in the depths of despair? And Marilla, who is a very pious woman, turns and says to her, no, I have not. To despair is to turn your back upon God and shuts the door and walks out. Despair. <laughs> Despair is what we try to avoid, and yet life can turn in so many different ways that, that surprise us, that make us realize we are out of control, and despair is something that we all experience. It's a part of the human experience, and that's where Job finds himself in this text that Chris just read. Would you pray with me? Oh God, you are the God who is with us, that doesn't ask us to put on a face or to believe all the right things in order to be present with us. And so we are so grateful this morning. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness, and thick darkness would cover my face. We learn in the beginning of this story that Job had everything to lose. He had seven sons and three daughters. 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, many servants. And in one day, he lost all 10 of his children, all of his livestock, and all of his servants. His wife, the only thing that he had left, told him to curse God and die. If there was ever a case for despair, Job was it. One commentator calls the book of Job wisdom and revolt. Indeed, Job is in a place that is beyond wisdom. He's beyond the best advice, beyond grand ideas and clever philosophies. All he knows is loss, grief, devastation, despair. 
Job spends the rest of the book trying to make sense of his pain along with the help of his three and four friends who, who keep coming in with their explanation. How can the God who he loves, the God he feels so blessed by, allow or will this to happen? How can he put that all together? And this may be the question, the question of faith. And I can't say that I can give you an, an exact answer, and indeed you should be suspect of anyone who can give you an answer to this question. But I do want to unpack it and frame this question of how God can allow or where God is in our suffering and what, why good people suffer. This is one of my um, favorite topics, which is kind of sick, but also says something that Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day was my favorite book when I was growing up. So maybe that was a precursor to, to this uh, subject for me. And uh, so I have some illustrations, and I apologize that you all can't see what is going to happen up here, but um, hopefully you'll get the, the point. But the writer Elizabeth Gilbert... Um, she was, her partner died earlier, earlier this year, her partner named Raya. And this week, uh, she's actually in one of her favorite cities in Rome, uh, of which she wrote about in the book Eat, Pray, Love. And yesterday on Instagram, she posted this on social media. She said, yesterday morning, I woke up crying in sorrow over the loss of Raya. Today, I did too. In the 24 hours between those two bouts of tearful grief, I laughed and ate and drank with my friends. I sang with strangers. I danced alone. I dove into a really good mystery novel. I wandered the streets of my favorite city and delighted to the sounds of Italian in my ear again. Now it is another golden day. Raya is irreplaceable, and this morning is a gift. I will cry again. I will love this day. Grief is not an interruption of your life, but a braided into the soul aspect of it. We weep and we continue. So in this post, she really names these two realities of our life. And, and one is that life um, is, is full of beauty and meaning. Every time I hope that you look out at these trees, when you see the, the leaves changing and you walk outside, you, you have this sense of beauty and purpose. Think back to the times when you fell in love. Think back to maybe when your first child was born. Think back to those moments when you knew there was a larger hand guiding you when you sense that, that design. Elizabeth Gilbert is feeling all of this beauty in this day in Rome, beauty and friendship and meaning. And indeed, in my own life, I can tell you about moments where, where something happened and I knew it wasn't me. I knew there was something that was, that was working bigger than me and it, and it worked in such a way that, that was so right and that gave me so much hope. But there's the second reality that we have that is that life is full, often, of suffering. It 
It's hard for a lot of people a lot of the time. And for us who are sitting here in this very privileged place, it's easy for us to just focus on the beauty and meaning and to avoid this, but you watch the news for very long and you begin to realize that, that suffering is everywhere and that it is rampant. And so how do we make sense of these two things? How do we live in this paradox of a world that is so beautiful and so meaningful and a world that has so much suffering? I want to explore a little bit about suffering and how it works and, and unpack some of the things that we hear about suffering. The first, um, the first thing that suffering does is suffer, suffering teaches us. I was talking to a friend this week that, that was asking me about a difficult time in my life a few years ago, and he, he asked me the question, you know, did you learn something from it? And I said, well, yeah, actually I did. I, I learned a lot. I'm a different and a better pastor because of what happened during that time. I can look back and say, yes, I learned something during that time. Suffering also helps us grow. You know that old phrase of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> This act of suffering, or this way of suffering, actually kind of acts like an exercise regime. You, you work out, you do what you need to do, you make it through, and you mature, and you grow. I remember the early days of our marriage as it began to dawn on me that Chris was not going to go home at, every night, <laughs> that we were going to have to stick in this, that I was going to have to figure this out, and slowly, slowly... I began to change. I began to make more room in my consciousness for the reality of another person, to learn how to be a partner. So while there may have been some difficult moments in those early honeymoon, first year of marriage days, I grew from it. Some suffering is a consequence. As a parent, I was always big on natural consequences for my kids. Uh, and so much so that I felt like my, my greatest moment of pride as a parent was when my daughter looked at me and she said, stop consequencing me. <laughs> I was like, yes. You know, we had, we had gotten to this point where she um, knew that it wasn't a punishment, there was consequences for her actions. But, but consequences are part of why we suffer. I remember a few years ago, in the, I think it's the early 90s, there was a Christian singer who died in a plane crash, and of course there was all these questions about how God could allow this to happen, but the reality was that the, uh, the plane had been overloaded, you know, and so, so these things happen, or, or we drive carelessly, or there's just consequences to our actions that cause suffering. But I believe that in order to really address this issue of suffering, to really understand this paradox we live in, that we also have to acknowledge that there is another kind of suffering, and that is just plain old senseless suffering. Birth defects, genetic mental illness, terminal diagnoses, Natural disasters like that 2004 tsunami in Asia where 230,000 people died in one big wave. I'm sure you have, can think of your own examples. 
there is some suffering that is so great and so devastating that it really has no purpose that no matter what it teaches us and no matter how it may grow anything, but really it's just random and seemingly cruel. And, and a lot of our, our reality as humans is trying to avoid this kind of random, cruel suffering or trying to, to not let it touch us. So it doesn't make sense to us. Like, if God can, if God is a God of meaning, if God is in control, why wouldn't God stop that wave? Why wouldn't God change a weather pattern? Why wouldn't God stop the, the shooter in a school? Why wouldn't God just shift maybe one of those chromosomes so a child wouldn't have to be born with a birth defect? We hold this this suffering in one hand. And yet, and yet, and yet, our experience of love and the unique beauty of each creature, each cell, the mystery of connection with God and the incredible fantasticness of life tells us that there must also be meaning. How do we reconcile this great tension? On one extreme, people give in to randomness. They say, well, there's nothing we can control. So they go along with the writer of Ecclesiastes when it says, eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of the life God gives us, for this is our lot. For some people to give in to this random senseless suffering is to say that, that it doesn't matter what we do. And this, per this person certainly has some integrity this, this position has a sense of reality to it, but it also doesn't allow for, for God to be engaged with us in our lives, for beauty to touch us. On the other extreme, people ignore the randomness of suffering, and we're very familiar with this perspective. It's the one where as they, people say to you, everything has a reason, nothing is out of God's control, Everything works out for the good. Have you heard some of these things? It denies the incongruities, and it resists any sense of mystery. It favors the stories where everything works out in the end. So I believe there's a third way, and I believe that we can hold randomness and acknowledge the depth of suffering in our world, and at the same time live life with meaning and integrity. But in order to do that, it requires four things. First of all, holding this paradox requires us to separate the goodness of the results of our suffering from the badness of the events. Let me give you an example. Um, as I've shared with you, there was this major defining moment for me when I was 22 and I had a fr good friend who was murdered. And out of that event, I have, um, the rest of my life kind of began. Like I, I sh my faith began to shift, my direction in life began to shift, I grew, my capacity to be with people who are in suffering changed. So many good things happened in my life, 
because of experiencing that event. But these are the two words that need to be taken out of our vocabulary when we talk about suffering. The two words are so that. Tim, my friend, did not die so that I could have this happen. This suffering doesn't happen so that I can grow. It's Tim died, I grew. And the more that we can in our thinking and in our speech to those who are suffering separate those two things, the bigger the, or the more capacity we will have to hold this paradox with integrity. I'm having microphone issues this morning. So holding this paradox requires us to make that separation. So listen to your language and listen to other people's language. Take out that so that, so that we can actually acknowledge suffering happens and it's difficult, and there is beauty and meaning that comes out of it, and we, and we can hold those both without having to make them this happen so that this will happen. The second way that we hold this paradox is to have a different vision of God. Many of us were taught an idea of God is God up in the sky pulling these levers, healing some people, striking others down, opening up a parking spot right at the right moment. But I don't think that's how God works. This really came home to me when um, my, my younger daughter um, was born um, in an emergency C-section, and um, for those of you who are in that, uh, this realm had an APGAR of two out of 10. That's a score they give to babies when they're born. She had a pulse, and one other thing they had to do, um, had to resuscitate her in the operating room. She almost died. And the doctors and nurses kept coming in to check on her all week because they were traumatized by what they had experienced. But then when we went home, we learned that across the street, uh, my neighbor's granddaughter had died in very similar circumstances. And so how was I going to make sense of that? Was I going to say that, that God allowed Emmy to live in some way but, but didn't allow this precious grandchild to live? How did I hold those two things? And, and I just don't think God works that way. And if we look at Jesus, we see a God who is, is with us in our suffering. We see a God who is with us in this paradox and in this tension. God affirms and is in the meaning and the beauty, but God also weeps and suffers with us. The power of God is not in God's ability to control the world, but in the reality of God with us and in us. And I admit to you, I don't get this, but I know both are true. And so the more that we can see God as, as a mystery, we can see God in this paradox with us, the more we are able to hold this tension. Third, holding this paradox requires resistance. Again, look at Jesus. Jesus healing. Jesus loving the unlovable. Jesus calling out authorities who misuse their power. And so we are also called to be in the world in such a way that we are resisting suffering. In such, not, not denying, but resisting injustice. Working for mercy 
working for justice, working for relief, working for healing, being a presence of kindness and compassion and truth. When we're in that place where we uh, see a God who is there with us in the suffering, loving in the midst of it and speaking truth, then we are able to hold this paradox. Holding this paradox lastly requires faith. I wish it was more of a mathematical equation, but there it is. As people of faith, we believe there is a love that is greater than any tragedy. We believe love is the ultimate reality. Radical suffering does not have the last word. We live in those words of the Apostle Paul, where he says, I believe that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things presence, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And ultimately, it is that love that allows us to hold both. That love which, which gives us the strength to despair like Job and also to accept the beauty of our lives. Standing in this paradox is not about doing it perfectly. Some days we're given to the despair in the face of great suffering. Other days we're given to the ebullient joy of the meaning and beauty of our lives. That's just the reality of being human. But God is with us in it, offering us courage and compassion, saying these favorite words from Frederick Buechner when he said, here is the world. Terrible and beautiful things will happen. Do not be afraid. Amen.